Hello, this is Journeys in Podcasting. Today, we have the pleasure of talking to John Phil, who is an administrator um, in Meridian, Idaho, and he has two blog posts we're going to try to cover some of the main topics of. One is a phased reopening plan for libraries as COVID-19 restrictions are lifted, something all librarians and schools are probably concerned about right now. And the second is uh, an interesting art- a recent article called Restorative Justice in Libraries, A Short Guide. So, John, how are you and... Where are you? I'm doing well. I'm here in Idaho, and I'm happy to be here. Getting a chance to talk about some of these issues. I know for us, we're we're working through a lot of these things still to this day. Yeah. So as I quickly learned in, in the pre-conversation, uh, John is also a big fan of Cumbia from Colombia, where I'm talking from, uh, and so. Maybe we'll get to sidetrack on that a little bit at the end, but today let's talk into some of the more, more serious stuff. And so in your blog post, one of the things you said is that um, messaging and plans should be in place to encourage the most vulnerable population to limit their time in the community and or allow for service hours that accommodate their needs more specifically. Public libraries have a very particular job um, just because you deal with a, a wide range of ages, a, lot, a wide range of public use of the library, and you have to kind of be the room of requirement and adjust to being that need for all people and all in all things. How have you dealt with um, this and how do you identify those that are more at risk and reach out and provide hours of access just for them? I think, you know, Chris, it's been an interesting problem to have to deal with. Um, a lot of it is because, you know, in, in Idaho, we don't have strong messaging from the state level so a lot of the things we've had to come up with have been things that we had to kind of invent and make work on our scale um so i mean one of the things we did uh pretty early on probably in i think we started this in probably the first week of may is we decided we were going to try to do home delivery services uh through the library and what this allowed us to do was really uh give a really good avenue for um, most vulnerable populations to uh, the disease to get access to library materials and services through um, a, a mode that was, you know, very safe by comparison to you know, other things we could have offered. Uh, so they get materials delivered to their door, and um, we've used our our messaging in a variety of platforms to you know, encourage people to use that, especially if they are people who are uh, more concerned about. Um, their exposure risk, um, you know, yes, messaging it through our Facebook channels, our website, and um, even some of uh, the neighborhood social media that exists in uh, the states here. Let's uh, tangent on that just for a second. I see you guys are active on Instagram, active on Facebook, Twitter. When you say the local social medias, uh, how do you, what is that? That's mostly next door, you know, that's. Uh, People use it a lot in Meridian, you know, because they 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 sort of live in um, neighborhoods that are, you know, in a lot of ways kind of they're like they're not gated communities, but the way they're structured, you know, they're they're they have their own HOAs and they um, tend to interact a lot within that uh, small housing development that they live in. So using Nextdoor is a great tool for messaging um, for us, and it has been for many things that we've done. Hmm. Yeah, so um, we're dealing with a lot of the same issues that you're talking about in that our library is open for kind of uh, classes and things, and we're making sure we 
you know, wipe down materials as kids come and go, space them out as they're in the space. And if we're doing something virtually, we have like a microphone they can kind of walk up to. They may pull down their mask just for that uh, engagement. Um, but we're trying to control, aerate the room as much as possible in between classes, alternate in upstairs and downstairs space. Um, how have you guys dealt with uh, this other issue that I'm talking about of like, we really want kids to get books in circulation. So we're sending books out, you know, by unit studies out to the classrooms uh, to avoid all of these touch points within the library space. Um, and yet I'm finding that that's going to require uh, to really get like the specific use of the library of getting the books, uh, the individual selections the kids want. Then we have to go and really train, uh, do a better training of like the library software, um, how to select the books, because most of the kids are kind of like I am. I know my library sections. And when I want to go find a book, I just enjoy going to peruse the actual bookshelves and things. Are you finding the logistics of getting people on board onto digital platforms of how to select materials? Is that a challenge? I think it was less of a challenge here, maybe to get people involved with the digital platforms. They took to it pretty well um, after the closure for the most part, but that doesn't cover all of our bases because, you know, we do have a low income um, service population that we have to serve as well that has less access to those sorts of things. And for them, that's where we've concentrated a lot of our efforts on things like book mailing. Um, so basically, you know, we, libraries do summer reading every year. And um, for this year, we concentrated on serving uh, low-income uh, apartment complexes within our um, district so that we could have them participate and then we would, you know, mail them books to, to make sure that they had reading materials available for them during the this sort of long summer that we've all had um, away from school. So I think that has helped, but also, you know, in our buildings now, we, we do have some, um, some browsing available. We basically have created um, a variety of displays to kind of limit the amount of materials that are sort of being touched and handled by patrons, but um, enough that we can create vibrant displays for kids and, and youth and different you know, sort of packages that we put together for them to take home based on, you know, different themes that might be popular with them, whether it be like a, a character from a TV show that they really like or anything to really get them reading. And one of the you know big concerns right now is, you know, we want to get stuff off our shelves because we have a, a lot of materials in our building um, because we have a kind of a bottleneck for getting them in and out because of uh, you know, a lot of the number of um, people we're allowing in the building restrictions that we've put in place uh, you know, for safety, for safety's sake. Yeah. So the article that I was reading here was, you wrote this back in April and you wrote about this like sustained reduction in new COVID-19 cases would set um, different phases for how to organize your library systems. And you talked about a quarantine or resting period for materials up to 14 days. And how do you, how, once you set those triggers and those phases back in April, um, how is that, how is that gone? Have you been able to stick to that? Or are you at all in conflict with municipal state leadership dictating that certain things open at certain times? I think you see where I'm going. Yeah, I see where you're going. So I mean, it's a really complicated situation once you get on the ground with it, right? You know, in April, um, it's easy to put that. It's easier to put together that framework in a lot of ways because you know we're working with um, a lot of um, nothing was open yet, 
Um, in Idaho today, you know, most things are open to some degree with some restrictions, with the exception of like bars and you know large events. Um, but even movie theaters are starting to open here. So we do come sort of directly head to head with um, some of the what you're talking about, the sort of political elements of this whole thing where we have, um, you know, differing ideas about what, what constitutes safe measures within a facility. And if we look at our um, retail facilities within the facility, within the, within the district, they, you know, they're operating pretty close to what they might have before the pandemic um, with, you know, some safety measures may be added. Whereas for us, you know, we don't feel that's quite where we want to be yet. Um, it's not, we're, we're in a high spread area um, and um, making sure we have safe limits on how many people can be in the building. And then we really pay attention to face coverings has been really important, but we've had to, to, you know, take some measures to um, open some things up to encourage uh our population to feel, you know, like that they're being, they're getting what they're paying for as far as the, um, the use of the facilities. So, you know, opening up some browsing, um, our home delivery program was a big success in that, you know, it allowed a lot of access, uh, without having to have people in the buildings. Um, but we still get, you know, complaints about how open we are or whether we're not, you know, that we're not open enough yet. So, um, it's something we're continuing, continually looking at trying to balance the, the public desire to have those library services look more like they did before the pandemic, but also the safety of the staff and the community and um, how, how to find that happy medium if there is one, which we're not always sure there is. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I like this idea of the mobile units. We're looking at something similar that if the school does have to go through, you know, periodic closures throughout the next year or two, how do we keep books in circulation? What staff needs to be in place? How did you shift those logistics or training of staff? Or did you have to hire new staff to, to run these mobile units or whatever you call them? Well, um, that's an interesting question. Like we, we, we came, we went from um, idea for home delivery to uh, actually having it running within a week and a half in uh, late April, early May, which was crazy because we would never start up any uh you know new program like that in a normal circumstance but um we were moving very fast at that point you know um, through phases in idaho and we uh, needed to find a way to for the public to feel like we were giving um, good service while we were still maintaining as much safety as possible and home delivery just ended up being a really good option for us um and like we're still working out some of the bugs with that program uh, to this day, um, especially around the processing portion of it. You know, how do we move from um, items in our catalog being placed on hold to adding the those items to delivery software um, and make that more seamless? Because right now it's it, it's pretty staff intensive, and that's something we need to find you know ways to um, trim down, especially you know as we scale up operations here. Um, we did have to hire a, a delivery driver. That was probably the only position we've hired in the last, I don't know, six or eight months here. Um, 
And the reason for that was we had some insurance requirements around commercial driving that we needed to make sure were being met. Um, and we couldn't do it with just like plugging in our, you know, staff into the driving positions. We had to pay you know, a lot of money extra for insurance on someone that would be doing, you know, something that's akin to commercial driving. And so it did require us to do um, a new hire on that front. What does that look like at a granular level? I don't want to make you go on for hours, but like, what does the journey map look like when someone does request a material? And then how does it go from, you know, the shelf or the locker or wherever it's kept, you know, to their doorstep? So right now we, we are using our normal mechanism for placing a hole through our catalog. Um, we've kind of created the uh, home delivery option almost as if it was a location. Um, so when people request items to the catalog, they say they want it through home delivery. We have um, our processors for home delivery pull the items off the shelf. They um, add those to uh, a spreadsheet. It's like a database more than a spreadsheet really at this point um, where we you know, can keep them updated. It also pushes out delivery information. Um, so like people are kept informed as they go about, you know, item has been pulled, it's been sent out for delivery. Um, it's been delivered, which is really nice. Um, but it's like an Amazon. Yeah. That, that's something that, you know, we were you know, lucky enough to be able to purchase a product to make that work, but we still have a disconnect between, um, you know, getting items from the catalog to the spreadsheet, which the spreadsheet talks really well to the, uh, delivery software. Um, you know, we just upload a CSV file and it's like ready to go, tells us plans routes for us and all of that. And that's really nice because we don't have to do any manual work on that front, but it's a matter of moving things from our catalog to, um, the spreadsheet is the piece that's taking the most time and then packaging things takes a while too. So, you know, after things have been pulled, they've been, um, uh, put in the spreadsheet, they get packaged up for delivery and then, um, those they're put into like groups of routes, right? So you know the, the delivery software assigns groups to the, the the file that we have, and so those groups are based on you know some ge geographic things like you know what part of the city um, they'll be driving in that day, so that we can be pretty efficient on um, making sure we're like not you know going from point A to point B that are completely on completely different sides of the, um, the area that we serve. Whoa. This is way more complex than I ever it's, imagined. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the scale that you're working with, really. I know that there's been some um, smaller libraries, um, even rural libraries here that have uh, initiated home delivery programs too. And for them, it's been a little easier um, because they didn't have to do all the software stuff. They, they could make it work with uh, less um, infrastructure built around it because uh, they just have smaller service areas or you know, fewer people demanding the service. So. With us, we're doing, you know, several hundred of these a week at this point. And so you uh, kind of have to have a system that will um, make our routes efficient. Otherwise, it's just going to not, we're not going to be able to scale it at all. Yeah. No, this is super interesting. I mean, I, definitely the smaller school libraries won't be going to those levels of logistics. But what's really fascinating to me is that in such a short period of time, you can hook up a system where your digital catalog can even, you know, create a spreadsheet and then you can map out where they need to deliver. Um, did that require any hirings of new staff or was that all kind of just connecting software pieces 
Sorry, I'm I'm just more of a techie uh, person. <laughs> the, it, it it required we purchased the, the routing software and then the catalog to the spreadsheet. That's the problem. That's where we don't have a connection right now. We're we're like exploring grants at the moment to make that happen. But right now we're moving all of our information from the catalog to that spreadsheet by hand, which is the biggest mm. sort of time piece that is is not efficient at the moment. Um, but like we're, we're looking for opportunities to try to find some, some way to code that in so that we can uh, make that. Yeah. That's what I was wondering is you, you go hire a coder to create the link between the software and the spreadsheet. Um, our, our guess is I'll we'll probably do a contract. You know, if we can find money from a grant, we'll, we'll contract it to uh, uh, some local company that can do it for us. Um, but since we only needed like a one-time solution, we would just, you know, pay for that through contract if we, if we get that forward. Now, when you, um, whenever this craziness goes back to any kind of normal, um, all these pieces you're putting in place, do you think you would continue to play with some of these services or do you think you'll just fold them back into normal? Yeah, I mean, we would, we would like to continue um, home delivery. So we think there's definitely going to be a market for it, um, specifically in our community. It's, it's, it's quite a bedroom community for the city of Boise. So we do have a lot of commuters here. Um, so home delivery can be really... Uh, convenient for them. And I think that even after the sort of pandemic winds itself down here, um, that they're probably going to be, it's probably going to be significant demand for the service to continue. But it does create some logistical things for us. Like um, we're spending a lot of staff time on the processing piece, um, the driving piece less so, but the processing piece is, is time consuming. And um, mm. how do we maintain that uh, when we return to something more like normal operations is a question we're uh, now contending with, we don't have good answers for it yet. <laughs> how, how, how has it been with uh, digital materials? Have you guys expanded your ebook collections or, you know, access to other things? I know that schools are all kind of working off of different digital, um, material, different digital book, uh, findings because they found that like, you know, at least teachers could get to materials immediately when they moved online. Epic books is still free for, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of kids are using that. Although I'm sure they'll, in that freemium model, at some point, and cash in on, you know, all of this uh, need for eBooks. What's it been like for you guys? For us, I mean, we early in the pandemic, we certainly relied heavily on digital materials to bridge the gap. Um, like from mid March through uh, probably the beginning of June, we basically did not purchase physical materials for um, the library. We poured all of our collection development money into um, uh, digital. So really uh, making a more robust uh, available, more, more, more robust catalog of uh, items available through Overdrive. Also um, pouring significantly more money into uh, Hoopla, which is another sort of uh, streaming set slash, you know, um, ebook service that we uh, have access to. Um, so we, we relied heavily upon the digital piece to, uh, you know, sustain us. And, you know, some of that has to do with also demographics within the community. You know, um, when we look at ourselves, we're a suburban um, district. So it means they're just a little more affluent than some other areas. And so um, people did have access to devices and we could make that work for the, the population by and large. And then we were able to focus some of our more um, niche services where we really wanted to aim to serve the lower income population that we have here. 
um, and focus those in at a, at a scale that we could manage, um, like the, the book mailing, and uh, mm-hmm. continue to do some outreach stops at uh, apartment complexes. Yeah, I, I mean, I still use, after spending some time in Brooklyn or whenever I'm there in summers, uh, you know, the library card is kind of a vital piece. And of course, those ebooks come in, you know, throughout the year. If I'm in other places, <laughs> I continue to, you know, take out ebooks all the time. And I, I believe they're also working with Overdrive. Uh, so those are incredibly uh, innovative ways to keep people reading and give them access to materials. Um, what are your thoughts on like getting people more into open source stuff in that digital regard and educating them about what is available and is there any way to make that also searchable through your database? Um, I know there's like a contentious thing about internet archive, which I'm sure you're not, or maybe you are, I don't know, uh, you know, finding material through other sources, but what about pushing people into finding, you know, what's free out there? You know, I think we haven't really done it on the, um, the ebook side of things that much, but we have done a lot of it um, in regards to uh, pushing out a lot of our, other resources that we have, but also you know, other free resources on the web that are useful to people, especially, you know, as we've seen like a, an economic downturn, uh, luckily here, not as bad as many other places, but um, we had many people um, looking for things like uh, new works or trying to find new work or trying to find a job that they could accommodate, you know, also teaching their kids in virtual school at the same time. So, you know, we've been um, making sure we are highlighting resources um, for those things, um, providing a resume review service as well um, to encourage people to find new ways that are also going to be cost effective for them to do things like budget or um, search for jobs or, um, you know, figure out how to navigate the unemployment site. Uh, we've been producing like these short videos, you know, usually under five minutes to kind of walk people through one or more aspects of those elements and rely on a lot of resources that are available free off the web. Yeah, fascinating. Watching what's happening with university students, how a lot of taking a gap year or not entering university, seeing Google offer their six-month certificate program that, you know, a lot of people are looking at now as an option to a four-year degree. Uh, so I was wondering, yeah, how libraries would maybe fill in modular study or encourage people to at least know what's out there. You know, Coursera and all of these um, MOOC kind of centered learning really expanded during the during the COVID time. I mean, I took advantage of several. I think I did four courses, you know, since February, just because all this stuff was suddenly free online and stuff too. Um, how are you all with that of getting people uh, aware of, what coursework is out there or is that beyond your scope of what you're doing? I don't think it's beyond our scope, but we're still trying to figure a lot of it out, honestly, because um, even when we talk with our uh, department of labor here, um, they're still trying to figure out, you know, what are the biggest needs um, coming out of this uh, pandemic? And it's still not super clear. We still have a lot of people that are still, um, you know, kind of, they haven't, it hasn't become um, critical yet in many cases for them to, to find new work, you know, if they've been using unemployment for a while. So it's certainly coming and we know it. And so we're trying to get ahead of it. But we, we, one of the things we've certainly, we've been like looking at this issue 
quite a bit for the last um, few months, but we still need to find out like from, from a lot of our partners where these needs are going to be. And, and like, I know the conversation is definitely going on with us, but I don't feel like as confident as I would like to feel at this point <laughs> with how we're going to yeah. best. Well, I mean, also <laughs> the library seems to be the room of requirement that you just respond to societal needs. You know, like I'm sure you saw the New York times article about the effect on the homeless of once libraries closed, all of a sudden, you know, this was a social service. These were bathrooms. These were places to sit down and have a rest, maybe read something at the same time. Um, and now with the joblessness rate, I imagine that is an increasing challenge for libraries. That, that's what made me kind of wonder about, like, how could libraries become modular study, maybe even, or at least become sort of the cataloging of how all of this stuff is out there. Let's shift a little bit and talk more about your article, because you really do set out. I mean, it, it was very helpful to me. I just gridded. I just basically took your, um, your your different scenarios of different phases and and thought through different systems that were in our library space and started thinking through like, okay, well, what would the trigger be moving from this phase to this phase? So you demarcate four different scenarios or levels of restrictions uh, under a stay-at-home order, under strict social distancing recommendations, under moderate social distancing recommendations, and without any restrictions. This made total logical sense to me of how we might set up a library and classroom space and think of all the different touch points and access points and systems within that space. Having a plan of phases uh, just makes sense, especially before just before spikes or uh, when it when it looks like politics have tried to push the Swedish herd immunity method. And I, at the same time, I see from the MIT report that there's some evidence of cases slowing due to those had the numbers being affected. How do you keep this plan and how do you kind of keep your measurements? Uh, are you deciding that? Uh, how does that work? Well, I think politics does end up coming into play sometimes. And that, you know, for me, like this, this plan was a, was a really great starting point. And I know that a lot of people, uh, a lot of libraries across the country have used it as a starting point, which is what I intended. Um, as we've gone forward, we've, you know, certainly had to make adjustments based on um, our realities at hand. Um, after we kind of put this together, um, the state of Idaho came out with their own phase plan, which is like a five phase system. So, you know, for the sake of uh, how we have to communicate with the public, we kind of plugged a lot of what we had created with this plan into their five phase system, just so that we mm -hmm. could communicate well with, you know, what was happening at the state level. Um, and the state plan has some of the same features built in with um, measures, but the state does try to play with those a little bit. So it, it has meant that um, in many cases, we've slowed down where we would have been um, based on, say, the, the phases that the state is in. Um, state right now is in a phase four, uh, which is, you know, a fairly open um, setup. We're kind of in a phase three in our county that we live in. Um, and we anticipate we're going to be in, you know, something like a phase four in a, by the end of this month, um, just based on what the school districts are doing. But the, the, the sort of health district that, uh, put us in back into phase four, um, in the beginning, back into phase three in the beginning has now stopped using that system. So we're having to adapt again to <laughs> a new sort of system they're using, um, as they look at, uh, putting, schools back into session so it's been an interesting um 
journey for the the plan as from where it started to where it is now. But for me, like the whole thing came out of like just fear and terror about how we were going (laughs) to make this all work and how we would know what to do if we weren't getting good um, uh, advice from our health district or from um, the local governments here. Um, I think it was great and valuable to have. And I think it's been a great starting point for a lot of people that have um, had to you know create their own plans. But I, I think if the pandemic has taught me anything, it's good to be um, flexible and, and work with the, the reality on the ground. Because even we, our best laid plans for this or how we deal with exposures in the library where people have, you know, been in contact with someone who's um, has coronavirus, you know, for all of those things, each, each issue ends up being an individual issue as much as we plan for it. <laughs> There's always some particularity or peculiarity about the, the ones, the new situation that comes across our, our desk. So um, I think it's great to have a framework that this has provided a great one for us to, to um, keep going and, and modify as we needed. Um, as we got new information, as um, we've got new frameworks from our, our, our local uh, governments, but it hasn't been the end all be all for us in the end. Mm. Yeah. Um, I have a brother who works in law enforcement or, well, actually he's a lifeguard, but he's attached to different law enforcement agencies. And so he was telling me about all of the different uh, kind of state uh, precautions that they're taking, even down to cleaning materials, a form of something pledge that is like the wipe down for surfaces that is supposed to be, uh, doesn't allow the COVID virus to stay and, and live on for, you know, a series of weeks. And so once a month, they have an entire wipe down of all of their service, uh, all of their surfaces and stuff. And so that was interesting to me, just like on the ground, you know, people are making some pretty major decisions for their library space or for their school space. And the information is not always forthcoming that you have to kind of go out and investigate yourself. I have been looking at different, different international, um, you know, looking at, well, let's jump to the same question. I'm going to roll into kind of materials handling, handling, because this is something you cover pretty extensively. So it's one of the most complex areas you write of operations during pandemic due to the potential loss, potential of virus transmission on shared objects, such as books, DVDs. Um, Current studies suggest the virus remains present on plastic services for up to 72 hours and on cardboard and paper services for up to 24 hours. With this in mind, different material types may require different handling or all materials may require quarantine for some period of time. Current recommendations state that using cleaning products such as Lysol bleach or other disinfectants may not completely remove the virus from services. So uh, you probably saw a week ago or a little over a week ago, the Realm study came out uh, talking about how when materials are stacked, that even on paper, that it can be still active after six days. But if you space them out and give them breathing and airing space, that 48 hours tends to be enough for most materials, although as a hard plastics that might be something different. How do you stay up? What do you educate yourself on? What you know? How do you inform your guidelines? Well, we're definitely using the realm study as our, our basis for what we're doing. Um, for us, um, we have like spacing, space logistics that we just we can't, you know, not stack things. So we're we're at the six day um, quarantine right now. So basically, things you know come in um, day one and they're checked in a week later, a full week later on the seventh day this point um and it's interesting because you know we, we have the realm study 
but we also have information about virus transmission. And so there's this kind of a, it's a, it's a kind of a, a weird space right now. I feel like uh, we know that virus transmission is mostly through uh, droplets in the air, right? You know, it's, that's the main mode of transmission for um, people getting sick, but materials are certainly still a, a risk, but we, it's hard to know how much of a risk they are comparatively. I mean, we know they're probably less of a risk, but um, we're just, we're having to like make some judgment calls in that area. But right now we, we're quarantining everything for six days based on the realm study findings. And I, I, I anticipate, you know, they'll probably go back and do another uh, version of that study here shortly. And we'll, we may get some new information that means we have to, to look at it again. Um, but we have made some adjustments where uh, material handling from not returns, but material handling in our own building have been concerned um, because of the, the duration, which things are handled, say, on display or um, you know, people are maybe browsing through our, our limited browsing areas. Um, we're relying mostly on the use of hand sanitizer and um, people's, you know, the people want, you know, people placing things in quarantine bins if they, you know, do do that. We ask them to, but it doesn't mean they're always doing it. But the question is, like, really, like, if we go to a, a larger browsing, that wouldn't be necessarily something we maintain. But is it safe enough to handle materials um, without quarantining them if they've already been quarantined and they're on the shelves, right? You know, the risk is probably lower than, say, something's been in, that, in someone's house for two weeks. But... It's also, it's just hard to know, right? That's the, that's one of the toughest things. Yeah. We get new information all the time. But yeah, most schools are following CDC. Most schools are following CDC guidelines, but it's hard to to coordinate that with the realm study at the same time. And we're looking at just airing books outside. I mean, it's also going to be in Sudan where there's um, there's no humidity, uh, which apparently is a factor. Um, there's lots of UV, you know, available UV sunlight. But then again, not to get into much magical thinking, it's like there's no study that's been done in the you know in each space, and every context of every library is going to have something very different. The aerosol nature of the of the virus, I mean, there's been a couple of big publications on that, but in my opinion, it, they just sort of hit the wall, and nobody talks about it beyond that. I think Time Magazine put something about the aerosol nature, meaning that like it's your huffing and puffing space that is the biggest way of this uh, for this thing to. to um, to spread. And, you know, there's two particular studies. I think one is a Korean uh, study, a telemarketing company, where in the building, um, one office, everybody got sick, like almost 100% of the people uh, were positive for the virus. Yet in the building that all uses the same elevators, it has the same air vents and everything, uh, it didn't spread, meaning that that constant huffing and puffing space, like a classroom or any kind of closed space, would be the, the highest risk of spreading that you may have seen also this South Korea um, the woman who infected 50 plus people in a Starbucks. She came in, no one was wearing masks, and she infected 50 other customers, most of them coming and going, not even spending a whole lot of time there. Uh, but none of them were wearing masks. None of the Starbucks staff got infected. They're all wearing masks. They're all taking proper precautions at the same time. So, you know, I'm paying attention to all these kind of informal ways of data gathering at the same time. Just thinking through like, okay, for our space, you know, this particular space, these dimensions, uh, looking at what kind of air traffic is, I mean, airflow is going through there. Um, but at the same time, kind of waiting, will there be enough studies done to even inform us? It's hard to kind of make decisions based on just 
one study, one article, you know, one news source. So that's the part of kind of avoiding for me, the magical thinking of kind of wanting to think that this thing will work, but you know, at the same time, like there's no real study for that. So you have a great way of kind of going through uh, numbers of people and you talk about the phase 50 plus gatherings of no more than 50. If social distancing is lessened to the point where medium sized gatherings allowed, the library will likely be open to select services, including some circulation of materials. In this scenario, it will become necessary to develop protocols for processing materials to be put back into circulation. Chief among these would be finding space to quarantine materials before they're shelved, go back into circulation and go into the hold shelf or are routed to other libraries. Our schools, you know, shipping out, I mentioned they're shipping out unit study books out to classrooms so they can at least kind of keep more of a bubble and then teachers more monitor like the touching of materials. If someone finishes reading a book, it rests for a day before someone else can pick it up. Um, if we get to this phase where larger gatherings can happen in the library, there's still the problem of all the touch points in the book, book browsing. Um, any thoughts on looking at phasing gatherings or, or when to allow that book browsing? Yeah, I mean, for us, you know, based on some of the information we're getting, you know, we're, we're looking at, we have some degree of book browsing now, um, but where we are being very, very strict is on the mask requirements within our building. Um, that's you know not always the most popular stance in the um, in Idaho where we live. You know we have a lot of people that do not want to wear masks, but um, we basically a blanket. You have to have one in our building, um, and if you know you have medical requirements, we have alternative services available to you that you can use, like home delivery or curbside pickup. So um, we're focusing a lot of our our attention and safety on on that element, which I, I, for, for me, you know, I don't know if it's the right answer, but I feel like it does allow us a little more latitude for how we um, open up browsing spaces for um, the public uh, going forward. We're doing some outdoor browsing. We're doing a little bit of indoor browsing. The full collection isn't open yet, um, but, you know, for us, we anticipate it may be in, um, before the end of this month if uh, all goes according to plan. Um, so I think, I mean, it's a really a balance. Like I, I, is it absolutely the safest thing? It's hard to know, um, based on, you know, the information we have at hand, but, you know, we also know that the appetite for some of that risk in the public is, is, is maybe more than say it is for us administratively too. So that's a factor we have to like look at, um, too, as we go forward. And I think, I think we've done a decent job of balancing those two things. Um, and I think for us, with the aerosol nature, like you said, of the virus, we, we really have just like tried to make sure that that's a place we're not bending on whatsoever, that we're making sure that all the people that come in our, our facilities are wearing masks and they're wearing them over their noses and that they keep them on the entire time they're within the facility. How do you onboard your staff uh, one into the phases and the, and the systems. Um, how do you onboard them onto that? And is there any difficulty there? Does everyone kind of just agree, or you know, are there some that don't agree with certain things? Oh, you're, that's that's a great question, honestly, because you're right. You know, people are at different places on this. Some some are more risk averse than others, and I think for us, the most critical thing has been to just involve them in some of the decision making process, giving them all the information at hand. Um, like we did that with uh, 
before the before we had a, a mask mandate in our uh, in our county, which happened really late. You know, our mask mandate wasn't in place until I think it was mid July. Um, so we asked our staff, you know, early on, like the first time we offered any in building service, which was we offered like you know critical computer use for people who had to you know, apply for unemployment or jobs. Um, what do you want to do about masks? Do you want to enforce them strongly and have to have those conversations with people that are not always positive? Or do you mm-hmm. want to be more lax about it? And staff came strongly down on the side of they want to enforce it and they would be willing to have those conversations and even if they were uncomfortable. And as we've gone forward, we've tried to do that as much as possible to get their feedback on you know how we should be administering some of these safety protocols because they're the ones that have to deal with them day to day. And so we need to make sure there's going to be something that's going to work for them, but also that the majority of them feel, you know, safe with what we're doing. Um, and also that they understand the full picture of, you know, what the various pressures are on upon us from, you know, external factors like, you know, uh, taxpayer groups or, um, people in local government, um, and that they understand all of that as well. Yeah, watching schools has been really interesting, particularly, you know, a lot of this coming through news. So, of course, it's one the more sensational uh, data points. But, you know, parents protesting because they want a five day school week, uh, seniors protesting because they want, you know, live classes. They're worried about getting through the year and graduating. And then all of these different interest groups that are putting pressure on schools, be them politicians, you know, mandating that all schools must open. And. You know, I'm just waiting like for the mad. I mean, I guess there already are teacher shortages and that will probably increase as well. There may be a library uh, parallel to that. Have you you had any problems with staff just quitting, not wanting to take part in the in the public spaces work? Luckily, um, I think we have not we have not had anybody um, any real exodus. We have like maybe one person leave and it wasn't for that reason. They found another another job. Mm. We've had wow. we've had a lot of luck there as far as that goes, but I know that's not the case with teaching. Um, I know that the district has had some people leave, and then certainly, like you said, they've had uh, protests at the district offices for parents demanding in person in person services uh, for um, classes. Which you know, I mean, you have to understand where they're coming from in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm a parent, and I got <laughs> two kids here, and trying to do virtual school and uh, work at the same time is really hard and um it's it's much harder for other parents who have to be at their office they can't work from home how do they manage it all it's 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 an impossible ask that you know society is making in many cases so you have to be you know approaching that with empathy in a lot of ways even though it may not be sort of the the epidemiological best um thing right now no, you know, parents in especially particularly in urban concentrated environments where there has like where the quarantine really has been a quarantine, you know, this is a whole new world and you can't really get your work done if you have to also be monitoring families. I mean, a friend of mine literally sets up, he has two kids and he only see, he only has them on weekends. Um, so he sets up office in his closet where he can have some kind of sane space to retreat to. And then he has a timer every like 20 to 30 minutes. He just does a quick round to see if anybody needs help on their 
you know, project they're working on. So let's talk about the systems. I was really impressed how you identified a clear list of systems within your space. Were these already laid out or did you have to kind of sit down and really think through, but you're, you, you know, you went through checkouts and programming, outreach visits, home delivery, internet access, technology help, materials processing and ordering, shared materials in the library, um, you know, all holds pickup, entrance and exit to the building. How did you, or do you have any advice for spaces that are trying to um, get a good hold on what systems there are before they start thinking through each phase? I mean, a lot of that's a product of just the way I had to think about it myself. I mean, uh, I just, there's so many things that libraries do. It's in, in many other like, you know, schools or nonprofits, it's the same thing. We, we just have a lot of, of things that we are participating with, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And if I didn't break down um, all the, the major service areas that we participate in, I, I just don't know how I could get the big picture of what we need to do in each one of those and how we prioritize them too. I think that was a really important thing because we knew that we might have things like, you know, people that we didn't know how many people would be unable to work in our buildings after we started reopening, you know, how many people are vulnerable populations that need accommodations. Um, you know, we didn't know if we would have people leave the profession because um, of home concerns or not wanting to be exposed to the public. Uh, a lot of those were unknowns. And so we really needed to know for each of our services, you know, kind of what is the priority there? You know, when and what sort of phase or our um, ecosystem could we begin, you know, restart services for that area and you know which things are most important for um, us to maintain or continue uh, that we can. And so breaking it up into those categories, I think it really helped me understand, you know, how we could initiate some of our operations going forward and just understand the, the big picture of how it's all going to work in this, uh, in these circumstances. Hmm. I'm going to shift drastically to another article just because you coincidentally wrote about something that I'm super passionate about in schools, and that's restorative practices or restorative justice. And I had not seen a library approach to this, but I find it incredibly appropriate. Uh, I have some experience training and training other teachers in restorative practices, and my own personal use of it has been like epiphanies of what kids are capable of and as far as solving their own problems and offering support to each other. I mean, down to some really extreme case of, you know, a kid's father died and there wasn't proper social services being offered. And so when I attempted after a few days to do a restorative practice circle and everyone was kind of politely going around, sharing some experiences. And by the fourth person, the girl just stands up with tears in her eyes and like addresses the issue talks to the kid directly, and it just opened up all of this empathy for this very difficult situation. So this is a really powerful community builder and sustainer. I'm, I have a lot of faith in it. Uh, you write that during the school year in the afternoon, the influx of kids caused a variety of use uh, conflicts in the building and behavioral problems like fistfights, vandalism, and arguments with adult patrons. These are not uncommon. In this environment, once again, suspensions for code of conduct violations had little, little positive impact. Um, I've always hated this part of teaching and disciplining kids. Uh, I mentioned that I've had very positive uh, restorative practices experiences, especially leading circle talks, helping kids move toward a restitution of community. Libraries, in fact, seem like the perfect place for this. 
in that uh, you never want to ban entrance, but to keep the door open. You mentioned that you've seen positive results and that this has been the right approach. Um, how has this been the right approach, even for your most difficult cases? I mean, I'm, I'm on the same page with you, Chris, that this is just an epiphany for me. Um, using these tools, uh, it changed everything for us um, as far as how we deal with behavior problems. Now, I really wish that, like, you know, it's something I had been exposed to earlier in my career when I worked in an urban library because I think that it would have been so positive as far as how we could use it um, um, for some of our other populations that we dealt with there. But with these, the kids, we, like, have mostly middle school kids coming into our building. You know, I know a lot of teachers say middle schoolers are some of the hardest to teach, and certainly they, they have a lot of unique sort of behavior uh, concerns. And it's been just night and day experience with um, – what we can get out of these kids um, using restorative practices versus when we just use punitive measures. Um, the kids with the most problems that are coming into the, our library facilities day in, day out, they tend to be kids that um, have um, you know, less parental supervision. Um, they're left alone a lot of the time. They may not have a you know, super positive home life in many cases. And it just, it does seem so wrong for us to just suspend them from the library and say they can't can't use the services when really for them the library is a critical need in their lives it's one of the few ex exposures they have to you know positive adults in many cases um, and so being able to use restorative practices has been such a game changer in allowing these kids to stay in the library even when they have problems but also getting them to commit to making changes and making you know restoring their place within sort of the community that we're working with I mean, it's, it's different than schools in some ways, and that was the hardest part about um, starting it in, to use it in libraries was schools are kind of a closed environment, right, where you have a classroom and everyone belongs to the classroom, where libraries, people come and go. But mm -hmm. we have our regulars, and, and I think a lot of the practices, especially, you know, the use of uh, restorative questions, um, effective statements, and even circling, like, for, like, uh, people that we've dealt with on an ongoing basis is it's so effective. It just, it makes such a big difference. Um, we've had kids who we, we were just having daily problems with um, in regards to, you know, yelling at the computers or riding their scooters in the building, things that are like, you know, middle schoolers <laughs> do, but we've got them to like agree to do things like, Hey, when I come in the building, I'm going to take my scooter up to the front desk and leave it there. You know, that's something that they came up with. And it's just, it's just so nice to have that. Um, because the accountability is so much greater when the kid is coming up with their own solution to you know, how to resolve the problem they're causing within the community. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, that, I think you hit it right on. This is activating the student voice, their decision-making, democratizing the whole process. It's really beautiful. Uh, you also write that library services are critical to homeless populations, but at the same time, many of us go through a cycle of suspending the same patrons over and over again, for infractions related to mental health, drug addiction, and even hygiene issues. And this is probably behind the scope of most school libraries, but however, I, I thought it was super interesting. Uh, COVID-19 has hit the homeless community hard. We mentioned the New York Times article about the important services that, social support services that libraries offer to the homeless. As libraries are innovating both pickups and online services, what innovations have you seen or experienced or done yourself for servicing the homeless? I think that this is a hard one because I think libraries are still, they're not fully there. But one, one thing I did see um, recently was, I think it was in, shoot, I hope I'm right on this, Boston, 
that they were, uh, you know, distributing hotspots to homeless populations um, there so they have access to internet services. But I think that, you know, I don't know that we've done a great job as libraries, you know, you know, by and large in dealing with, you know, how do we offer services outside of our buildings to homeless populations who were some of our core users in many cases? I mean, in my library, they're not the core user base, um, but certainly, you know, I've worked in urban libraries in the past where that was a lot of our day-to-day -day users were um, members of the homeless population. And they're certainly really hard hit by this, both in that they um, are more affected by the virus than other populations, and that they've lost one of their sort of core services um, they have access to, to during the day. Um, so I don't, I don't really, I don't know if I have a good answer about what we can do to make a big difference there, but um, I know that urban libraries that we should be trying more to make a big difference there if we can. Mm. What do you, um, well, a couple of questions. Let's, uh, we'll wrap up with a couple of last questions. One is sort of how do you keep up? I mean, I've been following the International Federation of Libraries. Um, I have a couple of other sites that I visit. How do you just stay up? Do you have any Facebook groups you follow or, or personal learning networks? Or, you know, how do you kind of keep informed of, particularly during this COVID time? Yeah, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of different pieces there. Um, it's good to obviously pay attention to, you know, what new studies are coming out nationally. Um, the Realm studies have been really helpful, uh, but I use the Library Management Facebook group. That's a great one. Just to hear what other people are doing, what their uh, challenges are, how they've resolved them. Um, it's been really helpful for us to get that, you know, kind of information from other libraries across the country, and what, how they've solved a lot of the same problems that you know we're contending with. Um, and then it, Locally, it's been super important to pay attention to the school board meetings, the uh, local health district meetings, and sitting through those, and it's not always the most fun, but <laughs> it's been really critical to understand how they're thinking, and then also, you know, what direction we may be going uh, locally in the future. Um, sometimes, you know, we, I sit through a health, a health board meeting, and I don't get much out of it, but a lot of times I'll, I'll learn something new that I can sort of gauge where their direction is going to be in the coming months or the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. And I think that's been really important for the planning aspect of uh, our work because there's so many unknowns. So any, anything we can do to capture more uh, of an understanding about, you know, where uh, recommendations might be heading at a local level has been really helpful. Hmm. Um, yeah. So the second one was, just personally, what are your big dreams for library spaces? What would you like to see them become or adapt to or offer? Um... <laughs> well, I bet all of us right now in libraries are dreaming of, uh, you know, returning to something like what we were used to. But I don't know, you know, how it's, it may not be what happens in the next two years or maybe, you know, we don't know how long this is going to take for us to kind of be able to return to um, something more like what our normal services. So for me, like, as I look forward now, I, I think I see ways for us to do things like browsing, building, and offer some of those services around circulation that we did before. But the thing that's really hard is programs. 
um, library programs, at least in you know many libraries and certainly in, in my district, are sort of a keystone of library services. Uh, even when we survey the population, they they note that they're as important to them as um, checking out materials are. And so the limitations we have right now on what we can offer are some of the hardest things. Um, so for us, you know, we're trying to look forward a little bit and see how we can um, initiate some programming that is still safe but uses outdoor spaces, um, you know, where people are separated, you know, by designated, uh, you know, markers by to social distance them. So I think some of that is really for me, like what I I want to look in sort of the the short term future is, you know, how can we do some of the things that were really important to our communities still within this pandemic as maybe some of the restrictions are eased. But also like, you know, looking forward, libraries are such a community space and I, I, wanna, I want that to continue. And so the thing that's really scary for me right now as I look at libraries is it's not so much that we have all these service limitations, it's that we've really started to turn inward to a significant degree. Um, as we think about services, how does this impact us? How does this impact our staff? You know, and that's really important as far as the safety measures go. But, you know, I worked in a library that was very outward focused previously. And so trying to get us back to that place where we're, we're thinking outwardly about how what we do is going to impact our community and our, um, our population that we serve is so important. I think that's a real challenge for us. And I want to see libraries really get back to that and that's that's the, the sort of the big dream I have because I, I want us to be um, great community spaces and if we can't do that with people physically in our buildings then we need to find ways to do it in other um, inventive ways and we've libraries have been so good over the last you know two decades in finding ways to keep themselves relevant and sustain themselves even as more of the world has become digital and we, you know, prior to the pandemic, I think all of us felt like we were in a really good place with um, the profession, with our, our library services. But I think in a lot of ways, this inward turn has made us take a, a little bit of a step back. I think we need to recapture um, how important it is to serve our communities, and how important it is to be thinking about what's important to them and, and how we can deliver it in some way or fashion. Yeah, going back to that idea of the room of requirement and thinking through, like, I see you guys have some interesting digital innovations. There's singing for kids, there's puppetry, there's there's some really interesting stuff going on there. And I've, I've been gathering a, a list of these kind of new online innovations that li uh, many libraries have jumped onto. And I'm thinking of like a couple of things in comparison to that one was sort of like how China adapted so quickly to the COVID thing, not just because they have an autocratic government where they can mandate all of these things, but but they are already online. I mean, big time online, like way more than we are in the States. And so things like gyms were just immediately jumping on online gym services and all of these services just kind of made that transfer a lot faster. Whereas I wonder if in the States, that has been a little bit slower. I mean, I, I do find a lot of really interesting stuff. Like I go on, um, you know, Learning Librarians uh, Facebook group. And if you need a hack for a digital ca uh, a document camera, you will find a lot of resources there. If you want to throw any question out, you know, people will come up with the, their latest innovation or hack. 
So all that information sharing is happening really quickly. I just worry about like how slow we are in the States as far as adopting kind of online platforms and services for good and for bad. You know, I think some people just have a aversion to doing things online uh, or fear that, you know, the data tracking thing or um, the way this is changing the way we become literate adults, you know, all of the kind of disruptions that online thing can be. So that's what I'm personally struggling with. I didn't really have a question there, but if you have a comment on that, I'd love to hear. <laughs> sure. I mean, broadly, I'm concerned about some of the same things. I think we were lucky here in Meridian in that we had a high level of technical proficiency already amongst our staff. And, you know, we had operated a, a technology library for quite a few years already um, in the district. So we had a lot of the core competencies we needed to, you know, pivot to digital programming really quickly. Um, but as I look across the, the country, it's not always the case because I think um, for us, you know, because we already kind of had been some doing some planning on doing digital programming already, we didn't have to use as much of the, let's just throw the spaghetti against the wall approach and see what sticks. We already knew that we had some strategies um, laid out for how we would approach this and what parts of it would be important to us. And also, you know, some ways to measure, you know, whether we were doing a good job at it or not and that mm. we could pivot if we weren't. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that has been a struggle for some libraries, some more than others. It really depends on the, the, the system that you're, you're looking at. It's almost really, it's individuated based on where the library is and you know, what services they offered previously and how well their staff was uh, acclimated to technology in the first place. So I think there's a, a wide variance on that as far as how well libraries are doing, but I know for some it has been a struggle to move to some of these new platforms. Um, it wasn't too bad for it's, us. It's been, very, it's been pretty enlightening to me to uh, gather from the library spaces. It seems like information is shared so open source, um, whereas in education, it's a little bit different just because there's so much edu-corporate culture involved in, in, like some schools just won't share out what they're doing. Or if you look at like I've been kind of shocked that different reading and writing programs haven't just offered stuff free online, knowing the kind of crisis that teachers and students are kind of going through and just access to kind of setting up school or setting up rhythms online. Um, but because that these are programs that are often sold to schools, you know, that kind of transparency or open source sharing just hasn't been there. I'm definitely not finding that in the library spaces. You know, a few Google searches and in a couple of hours, I can't believe how much information I, I can collect. So your blog post definitely goes into that, you know, open source sharing and educating other libraries on how to approach this. Yeah, in, um, in many ways, it's a core, it's a core uh, value for libraries to, to share. So it, it's rare that you hear about a library program somewhere and you can't just go up, figure out who the coordinator of it is and ask them and they'll give you all their program plans. It's the, one of the nicest things about working in this profession. Yeah. I'm quickly learning. It's very, it's very cool. Well, we started our conversation before recording on a much happier note, talking about cumbia and Colombian music and how you can track down some of the folkloric origins of this stuff. Um, so yeah, if you stay online for a minute, uh, we'll continue talking about that part. And hopefully our next podcast can be more on something about musical cultural heritage or something. Uh, thank you very much for taking the time. That, that was great. Thanks, Chris.